It's with a sense of wonder, and I might add relief, that I from time to time meet someone whose penchant seems always to be a certain readiness to get up to turn around, as in Plato's cave story, where the unchained prisoner rises up to turn towards the light. It's for me a pure joy to behold someone whose chief characteristic is to stand up and spin around at every chance she gets. Her posture distinguishes her from those who remain bound and seated and who look upon such searching efforts with disdain or mockery. But their lack of approval is not going to slow her down as she is determined to do the extraordinary and not to settle for the usual. For this movement of getting up to turn around to face the light is never the usual thing to do. The usual thing is to go on sitting there like some kind of unthinking blob. The usual thing is to drift. The usual thing is an indifferent shrug of the shoulders. The usual thing is a vacant stare into space. The usual thing is to be hostile. The usual thing is to be on the go without pausing to reflect. But the one whose predilection is to get up to turn around, whose orientation is towards the light, has had enough of the darkness of cave life. She's had, for instance, more than enough of the soul-smothering entertainments of the cave dwellers. Like, she hates how they spend their time. For she's caught a glimpse of something higher beyond the cave, and it's with a growing sense of alarm that she feels the necessity to get up to turn around before it's too late. Well, she's been thinking that some radical action is required until finally feeling that the impulse can no longer be denied or resisted and has come to that point that she, it's almost like she has no choice. It's a divine imperative to act without delay. For she's in the grip of an irresistible call and can no longer do otherwise, as I'm saying, than to respond with all of her heart, soul, mind, and strength. Well, this pull to turn around towards the light is so strong, like she just simply can no longer sit there and do nothing about it. So she rises up and turns around come what may. Now on her feet, she gradually makes her way out of the cave towards that light, though dim and distant, feels more real than anything she's ever known before. And so as the story goes, she comes into that light and is lit up by it. Now immersed in the light, she begins to see by the light. She sees with new eyes, which means, therefore, that she sees more clearly and loves more dearly than ever before. Sun-drenched, she has acquired a new perspective, like a new understanding. Enlightened, she has become sharply delineated, delineated from what she was and now sees the stark difference between living in the light or living in the darkness. Well, and this is a knowledge that is almost more than she can bear. This level of knowing nearly tears her apart. In one sense, it was easier not to know. Now that she knows, it is both liberating and painful. But now that she's tasted eternity, there is no going back, whatever the cost. In her state of aesthetic arrest, she now understands why the Upanishads admonish human beings to discern the difference between the unreal and the real. She now gets it that we're called to choose between appearances and reality. We're called to distinguish between living a surface life or a life of depth. 
Having emerged from the shadows into the light, she now cares only to become more established in that which is substantial and enduring. In a phrase, she's no longer a scoffer or a mocker. She is rather a seeker, not a scoffer. She's become a person with an open mind, with an open heart, like not a closed mind, not a closed heart. She's open. And thus, accordingly, while the crowd goes one way, she goes the other. While the crowd goes downstream because, well, it's easy and fun, destined for the rapids, she swims upstream against the current towards the promised land. The proverb asks, how long will scoffers delight in their scoffing and fools hate knowledge? And well, the answer is, you never know. You don't know how long someone will remain unchanged and immovable. You don't know how long the skepticism will last. For some, it may be an entire lifetime of mocking and scoffing, resulting finally in a jaded and cynical state of psychological and spiritual impairment. The long-term damage of cynicism is a certain kind of cold look on the face that scares off little children and small animals. But there's another look. It's the look of someone who has resolutely remained in a state of wonder. Such an enchanted one, in platonic terms, is the definition of a truly educated person. Like the highly educated person, in platonic terms, is someone who has long cultivated her ability to perceive what Plato called the beatific vision or vision of the beautiful. So unlike the uneducated scoffer or mocker, Plato's educated person has been carefully cultivating the ability to discern the presence of that divine ultimate reference point at the heart of all things. By making it her constant practice to stand up to turn towards the light, she has become able to know. And that's the key word, able. For to see clearly does not come easily, does not come naturally. And so to know depends on the intensity of your longing, like how great is it? If therefore you're looking everywhere, like as in like looking for love in all the wrong places, but not looking in the direction of the light, you're never going to know anything that's actually worth knowing. You'll be like the mass of the population, lost in a lost world, forever bound, chained and gagged by constant distractions and diversions. Well, let me bring this alive with an illustration. For Evelyn Waugh tells the story of a classics teacher in a private school whose sole concern was to create what I'm trying to describe here, to create truly educated and what he called complete human beings. He is, in other words, a true teacher because his desire is to bring his students out of the darkness into the light. In platonic terms, the classics teacher knows that it's his duty to prepare his students to behold the beatific vision, like the vision of the highest. But the school's headmaster, tragically, has decided that it's no longer important to teach the classics. Lacking vision, the headmasters come to regard the classics as irrelevant, useless, impractical. He asks the classic teacher, therefore, what are we to do? Parents are not interested in producing the complete man anymore. They want to qualify their boys for jobs in the modern world. You can hardly blame them, can you? Oh, yes, replied the classic teacher. I can and do. 
<clears throat> I do blame these parents and hold them accountable for their lack of vision concerning their children. These parents are responsible for robbing their children of the possibility of a real education. Ignoring him, the headmaster increases the pressure by saying, has it ever occurred to you that a time may come when there will be no more classical boys at all? Oh, yes, says the teacher in response, often. Well, disregarding the teacher, the headmaster then goes on to suggest that some other subject be taught, such as economic history, you know, something more practical and relevant. No headmaster is the firm response from the teacher. The headmaster then warns the classic teacher, but you know, there may be something of a crisis ahead. Yes, headmaster. Then what do you intend to do? If you approve, headmaster, I will stay as I am here as long as any one boy wants to read the classics. One boy and I'll be there. And then showing great conviction, I think it would be a very wicked thing indeed to do anything to fit a boy for the modern world. While the uncomprehending headmaster responds, it's a short-sighted view. Their headmaster, with all respect, I differ from you profoundly. I think it is the most long-sighted view it is possible to take. And thus remains true to his call.